I also have an extremely hot take. Okay. It's not actually that hot, but I feel passionately about it. I, I, it. I think that so that we could call it like tepid or more than tepid. <laughs> it's a I feel like take. <laughs> it is it is tepid but strong tea. There okay. it's like tea that has been left out to chill. Hello! Welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. I'm joined today, as usual, by Dara Lind, and also today by Jane Koston, a senior politics reporter here at Vox.com. And we are here to talk about how the Trump administration works or doesn't work. Uh, we've seen a, a couple of interesting examples of it this week, and, and we're, we're going to talk about the sort of steel and aluminum tariffs controversy, which is now enveloping the back 36 hours of the week. But before this came up, uh, we had an interesting Oval Office meeting on guns at which the president, well, he seemed to lose the plot a little bit in terms of who has what side on gun issues. He repeatedly sort of blamed Barack Obama for there not having been stronger gun control measures uh, in the wake of, of earlier mass shootings. And he endorsed a range of Democratic policy ideas that he had not previously been been supportive of, including uh, the, the Manchin-Toomey bill that had died some years ago in, in the Senate, raising the age for who can purchase assault weapons. He sort of suggested he might favor an assault weapons ban altogether, although he didn't uh, 100% commit to that. And he said that, that the Republicans' main demand, which was uh, concealed carry permit reciprocity, he just kept telling them, like, that's never going to happen. Like, you guys need to drop that. And then he, like, called out Republicans by name and was like, you're afraid of the NRA. And so I think if you had no context, you would look at that and be like, wow, gun control is going to happen. As someone who, you know, was covering the immigration stuff in the first six weeks of this year, I was looking at the contemporaneous coverage of this meeting and just like burying my head in my hands because we have been through all of this before. We have literally seen the phenomenon in which the president holds a televised meeting on policy with stakeholders in Congress and says, you know, I just want to get something done on this. I want to get a lot done on this. I'm not particularly wedded to the traditional policy demands of my party. Send me something and I will sign it. And everybody goes, gee, the president is willing to cross party lines to make a deal happen. And then the president's advisors say, actually, that's not what he meant. Tell the president that's not what he meant. The president says, OK, I guess that's not what I meant and decides to block anything that, you know, people actually come up with. Like, we've been through this before basically to the letter. And so the some people in the you know in the media and observers were willing to recognize this and were very, you know, keen at the time to say, look, just because Trump is making mouth noises doesn't actually mean that his White House is going to put any muscle behind any proposals, doesn't mean that, you know, the White House would actually back a bill that does these things that Trump wants. And it's very hard to cover stuff like this. You know, it's it's hard to write an article about this. That is, Trump made mouth noises. No one knows what they mean. Our own Tara Golshan has gotten extremely good at this genre. Uh, Sungwin Kim of the Washington Post has done a very good job with the genre. But like, for the most part, it 
you have to write an article that says Trump appears to say that he would back all these things. And that gives the impression that Trump, that you think there's a chance that this is actually going to happen. So I think that we now have at this point two examples because we already do have evidence that the Trump White House is distancing itself from what Trump said Wednesday. He tweeted this morning that he had a great meeting with the NRA. The NRA came out of that meeting saying Trump opposes gun control. White House advisors spent yesterday telling The Hill that he didn't really mean what he said and literally citing the immigration meeting saying, we know how this goes. Like, At this point, I think it's fair to say that the president enjoys holding these televised meetings and furthermore enjoys confounding our expectations, right? Like he's said in the past that this is he thinks of his presidency as a reality show and every day is a different episode. Like this is exactly the kind of misdirection that you do in the middle 20 minutes of an hour-long reality show episode so that the final reveal, even if everybody saw it coming before the episode, seems surprising. Like we know how this is going to play out and it would be extremely frustrating if in the future any televised meeting of this nature got any degree of coverage whatsoever, because it's just it's on a certain level impossible to take this with any degree of seriousness or to treat it as in any way more newsworthy than a scripted, you know, Oval Office thing, which doesn't necessarily get live broadcast. What was the reaction among Republicans? To it was this? not good. It yeah. was not good because I think that you know I'm writing something about this right now. This is a little bit different from the immigration situation because on guns and on tariffs, this is not Trump like just making something up. This is reverting to his own personal mean. Mm. Like Trump has never been a super, you know, he he's said himself like he's not a gun guy like his sons. You know, and there's a National Review piece about someone who was at the NRA meeting in 2016 during which they endorsed him with flying colors and people in the room seemed visibly kind of like, well, I guess he's better than Hillary, but why are we so effusive about this guy when he has voiced very little interest in guns and has also kind of espoused interest in gun control? So basically, I think the real concern on the right is not that this is like he's just making this stuff up, but on these two subjects, this is what he actually thinks like last night, he said, you know, I had a great meeting, great, good, great meeting with the NRA and the Oval Office. But on tariffs, that's always been something that he's very much a protectionist on tariffs. And I think that on those two particular issues, it's interesting to see Republicans being like, no, 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 we thought we moved you past this. And like, no, no, you didn't. Well, I, so, I want to put a pin in the, in the tariffs. Right, but, yeah. Wait, what's interesting— A pin made of steel or of aluminum? Uh, all kinds. Um the guns is interesting because it's a question where on some level what Trump feels in his heart is not that important, right? The executive branch has a range of discretion on different policy topics. Gun regulation is an issue where executive branch discretion is very, very low. There is just not much that you can do sort of by your whim, right? And to the extent that Trump has staffed an administration with people, even that doesn't make a huge difference. There's not there's not a ton that you can do. But the most relevant officials like at the Justice Department are very conservative Republicans with orthodox opinions about guns. The judges he is appointing to the federal bench are very orthodox conservatives with regular conservative views about the Second Amendment. But beyond that... It, it's just a, really an issue that's in Congress's hands. And so even if Trump 
sticks by what he said in that meeting, right? I mean, we're now in the like quantum uncertainty phase where we have staffers who are orthodox conservative Republicans saying Trump didn't mean what he clearly said. But even if Trump does mean that, right? Say like Trump thinks background check reciprocity is a dumb idea. Trump thinks the minimum age for assault weapons ban should be raised. He favors a few other moderate gun control measures. The mere fact that he wants that wouldn't make it happen, right? right? Like President Obama wanted all that stuff. It didn't happen. Hillary Clinton wanted that stuff. It didn't happen. What's true is that if Trump like leveraged the full prestige of his office and like the weight of his administration behind those topics, he might be able to get it done because, you know, in a Nixon goes to China kind of way. But also he's clearly not going to do that. Right. right. Well, yeah, well, I, but it's worth kind of breaking down why he's not right because, like, in there is a lazy. world. Well, also, he famously agrees with the last person he talked to, right? Yes. So, like, the the you know the saving grace on immigration from the from the perspective of conservatives was that like it didn't matter what Trump himself could be talked into because they knew they had people in the White House who would step in at some point between Donald Trump decides that a liberal policy is a great idea and Donald Trump actually like you know throws his weight around on the hill to make that policy happen like right. they trusted that they had Stephen Miller and to a certain extent John Kelly like the reason that we don't think that Trump is going to actually throw his weight around on guns isn't that like Trump himself isn't very good at throwing his weight around like he could definitely tweet some things at like you know, some Republicans and threaten to hold rallies in their home states, yada, yada, yada. Uh, Those are tools that he like has and uses. It's more that the actual work of lobbying Congress requires not only the investment of the president, but the investment of his staff. Right. So like, who's the person, like, who's the Stephen Miller on guns? Who's the person in the White House who the conservative movement actually thinks can like talk him out of this stuff? The only person I could think of is potentially John Kelly, and John Kelly's kind of busy right now. <laughs> and But I think another point is that, you know, on guns, Trump has absolutely no idea what he's talking about. Like, he really believes that just by saying, I'd like to ban bump stocks, he can just do it. This he cannot. is generally that, like, what he believes, though, right? right? No, he ge- I, it's interesting because, I mean, there's kind of a conservative argument that, like, Trump and Obama, like, the interpretation of presidential power has, like, it has not really changed in a weird, in a way from Obama to Trump. It's just that Obama did it as kind of, like, this is a last resort because I can't get anything done. And Trump really thinks that, like, if I just say something, it'll happen. Like, even during that meeting earlier this week, he basically was just like, well, you know, bump stocks, that's that's pretty much a done deal. And I'm like, no, it's not. No, no, ATF, no, 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 you can't do this. It's challenging because, you know, you reference kind of the Nixon goes to China move, but Nixon knew a lot about communism and hated communism, yes. whereas Trump knows very little about guns and doesn't really care about guns that much anyway. There is the I, other th- interesting funny... point here is like Trump himself is a fundamentally a New Yorker from the 80s. Like it makes a lot of sense that his associations with guns are guns are things that scary black people have and threaten white people like That I I don't that makes all the sense in the world to me. But Donald Trump's son, Donald Jr., is actually like a big NRA sportsman dude, has been since before his father was in politics. And like for all of the talk about how the Trump children are too involved in politics while being involved in the family business and like, you know, Trump Jr. was in 
India the other week talking up a big Trump luxury development there while also being the president's son. Like, why hasn't Donald Trump Jr. stepped in and gone, Dad, you don't like let me explain to you what is going on here. Let me talk to you about why guns are good. Like, why hasn't that happened? Where is Donald Jr.? But Trump has even spoken though about like how like arguments he's had with his son about hunting. Like it's a a, a funny thing about Trump and the NRA is that there's a level of mutual pretending going on uh, that you also see, I think, with Trump and the pro-life groups, in which like Trump pretends to be deeply committed to the pro-life cause and the leaders of the pro-life movement pretend to believe him. Right. Mm -hmm. And like nobody like nobody really thinks that. But like everyone is committed to sort of maintaining the pretense. And it's an interesting thing. Right. I mean, Hillary Clinton, in her path to locking down the Democratic nomination, adopted certain positions that were at odds with. Uh, much of her personal record, you know, and so she she signed on uh, with labor unions to oppose Trans-Pacific partnerships, to oppose um, certain charter school type stuff that Obama had done. She basically, you know, signed on with base interest groups and some key things, and they endorsed her in exchange, but they never sort of put the shoulder to the wheel the way the NRA and pro-life groups have mm-hmm. to try to like pretend that they believed her. In this same kind of way, right? right. Like the the messaging from the NRA is never like Donald Trump, a guy who we have very little personal confidence in, has like agreed to take this posture, and we're happy but warily watching. So it's always this weird thing where like Trump will go in this meeting rambling and we'll be sitting there and we're like of course like this is a guy who's lived in New York City his whole life like he doesn't own guns he doesn't he doesn't care about like gun culture or gu- any more than I do but the NRA is like really like like they're committed to selling it you know that like Trump is the greatest champion of gun rights in American history and in a there's some sense in which that's true right like this is a guy who is Definitely not. Like, we just all know at the end of the day, he's not going to huddle with his pollsters, really look at the shifting sands of public opinion, decide he needs to reposition, call for a sister soldier moment. Like, he'll say weird things and his administration may completely lose focus. But unlike on DACA, this is something where congressional Republicans are absolutely unified. And, like, you would really have to, like, roll the boulder uphill to change them. And, like, it's just... No way they have the capacity to do that. Whereas on DACA, like Lindsey Graham and Jeff Flake were not like pretending to want a more moderate solution there. If the White House had backed them up, like they could have gotten that done. Whereas on on guns, like it's nothing. It's like only Democrats want gun control. The kind of unspoken subtext of what you're saying that I would like to make text is the Butt Gorsuch phenomenon, right? Uh, Which is, you know, at this point, kind of Washington Twitter shorthand for the fact that traditional conservatives who still support Trump do so not because of, you know, what Trump has done in the executive branch for the most part, but because Donald Trump managed to take a a Supreme Court seat that was vacated in early 2016 that Mitch McConnell successfully held empty through 2016 and appoint someone who is, as far as anyone can tell, a very strong, like strict constructionist absolutely aligning with the right wing of the court on all the decisions that matter so far and doing so in a very kind of strong and vocal way. 
that's an awareness of the judicial branch that the conservative movement has generally hadn't been able to mobilize on, that the progressive movement hasn't really yet. And so it's made for this kind of interesting phenomenon in which never Trump conservatives who care about legal principles have kind of taken this into a term of mockery, right? Because Donald Trump's use of the executive branch is, as Jane was talking about, kind of this extremely expansive, unconservative thing. But conservatives who still support Trump appear to believe that whatever his, you know, long-term effects on executive power, they're going to be balanced out by the fact that he's like created conservative dominance on the Supreme Court. Right. And it's interesting. I'm glad Matt brought up pro-life issues because I don't know if either of you remember when Trump did that interview during 2016 with Chris Matthews and he was like, yeah, you should punish women who have abortions. And I'm like... I like pro-life people were like uh, that's not what we think, but right, it, like, that's I, literally the the left-wing caricature of what yeah, we think. Yeah, which it seems to be where Trump lies on a lot of things of just kind of being like what a New Yorker in the '80s would think Republicans were like. But I think that you see that again. But I also would say that for a lot of conservatives, like you really had. You know, kind of the Butt Gorsuch thing, it goes a little bit beyond that because on a lot of these issues, they very much were like, clearly, we are stronger in the sense than Trump is. Like, Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan may be deeply unpopular with the Republican base, but they are influ- like they are definitely stronger politically than Trump is. And so they basically were like, okay, we've got this Trump guy. People seem to like him. We'll just keep doing whatever it is we're doing, and we can just hold on to power. But on on guns specifically, his gun control stances are far older and I would guess more deeply held than his newfound love of the NRA. Yeah, I guess another thing to me in the asymmetry has to do with the relationships of certain kinds of causes uh, on the right in particular to the media, right? That I think like one cost you bear as Wayne LaPierre in pretending to believe that Donald Trump is deeply committed to the Second Amendment is that you look like you're stupid, right? In, like, the eyes of, like, savvy political journalists, like, everybody is, like, rolling their eyes when, you know, a national right to life is like Donald Trump and his deep personal faith. We're all like, ha, ha, ha. Like, we get what you're doing, but also you're being a moron. And pro-life and pro-gun leaders, I think, to their credit, don't care. Right. Like they are looking at like what is the right thing to do for the anti-abortion cause. Right. If you want to make abortion illegal in America, the right thing to do in the 2016 election is not just to endorse Donald Trump, but to sell Donald Trump to your constituents and to sell Donald Trump to your constituents. You have to act like you believe it. Right. And there are lots of comparable groups. And I, I mean, obviously, all the Democratic constituency groups like backed Hillary Clinton because she was the more progressive candidate. But I think many of them in their hearts did not trust Hillary Clinton. Right. Many of them felt based on Hillary's record that she had not really earned that trust. And they wanted to be seen as not trusting someone right. who they didn't want to keep their powder the dry. Wait, even yeah. though it would have been more in the interests of, you know, the United Steelworkers of America to like pretend to wholly believe Hillary and to say that she was like the greatest champion of American industrial workers in human history. But they didn't want to say that because you look stupid if right. you said something like that. And they actually care about being seen as like savvy, well-informed 
political operators, even though in many cases, like that's counterproductive. Right. There is, though, there's a little bit of a difference between Trump's relationship with pro-life and religious groups and his relationship with kind of gun rights stuff that's emerged since he became president. And it's something I want to point to because it it shows the limits of talking about, you know, Trump as a figure within the Republican Party and conservative coalition. Like, I hate armchair psychologizing. This is not what you come to the weeds to listen to. It is not what we're at Vox to cover. We're much more comfortable talking about politics as a set of structures and influences because that's the way politics actually work. It's not a personality driven thing. Except that Donald Trump does not care fundamentally about the Republican Party or the conservative coalition. And so what Trump will do becomes a matter of arbitrary psychology more often than not, because he doesn't see himself as representing a coalition of interests. His decisions are based on it appear to be based on what he personally wants. And two kind of warring impulses there are that Trump clearly enjoys being loved by a certain segment of the Republican base and enjoys, you know, saying things that provoke their love and loyalty, but also sees his relationship to actual groups and individuals as once you have said that you're on board with Trump and you're loyal to Trump, he's won and you've lost and you then have to continue to debase yourself to like win his support, but he doesn't owe you anything. The first impulse seems to have won out with the pro-life groups. Like Trump actually is talking now about his personal faith in a way that like still seems weird and insincere. And I don't know that anyone in Washington necessarily believes, but it's something that he has adopted as kind of it's in his repertoire of things he says he cares about now. And it's a shift that's really happened since the inauguration. Whereas on guns, he said during that televised meeting that like, basically, the NRA will do what he tells them to do, uh, which isn't actually the case, but reflects the fact that Trump has calculated that whatever love he would get from the gun rights arm of the Republican coalition is not as substantial as whatever love he's getting from the religious right. Let's take a break, and then let's talk about metal. You guys have heard me talk about movement before, MVMT. It's a great story. It's two college dropouts. They started their own watch company. This company's grown like crazy, and now with almost 2 million watches sold in over 160 countries, they continue to revolutionize fashion, and they're doing it based on the belief that style should not break the bank. I don't know if you checked this out lately. They've doubled the number of watch styles, and they're expanding all the time. So they come really far from being crowdfunded kids working out of the living room. Uh, they've got a ton of new watch collections for men and for women. They've expanded to sunglasses and fashion-forward bracelets. It's a lot of cool stuff. It's really difficult for a company to reach that kind of exponential growth. And the reason they've done it is, frankly, they've got great designs, cool products, and reasonable prices. Movement watches, they start at just $95. You know, for a quality watch in a department store, you're building it four or five hundred bucks for something like this. They got them way, way, way cheaper. They figured by selling online, they're able to cut out the middleman, cut out the retail markup, provide the best price possible. They were talking about classic designs, quality construction, style minimalism. I think you're really going to like them. You know, just check them out on the website. You see what you want. And if you see something that you like, we've got a great opportunity for you. You get 15% off today with free shipping and free returns. How do you get it? You go to mvmt.com slash weeds. We'll get credit. They'll know you listen to the show. You'll get 15% off. That's pretty amazing. So see why movement keeps growing. Check out their expanding collection. Go to mvmt.com slash weeds and join the movement. 
When Trump won the election and the stock market started booming and the transition was happening, I wrote a take a little bit more than a year ago, and it was about how Wall Street was really turning a blind eye to the very high risk that Donald Trump was going to implement uh, crazy protectionist trade policies that created a lot of economic problems. I had like a whole argument for why this was the case, including the fact that this was one of the few policy views that Trump had held consistently throughout his different political evolutions, that he had a commerce secretary installed who is very knowledgeable about trade protection, although he has a very eccentric view of the the policy merits, but like he knows all about it. Um, The discretionary authority that is lodged with the executive branch over tariffs is like vast beyond comprehension in in ways that I think people don't understand. And that he even had this like backdoor policy process through Peter Navarro in which information could be stovepiped directly to him. So I was like, this is going to happen. You guys are going to lose all your money. Um, I was totally wrong. Trump didn't do anything like this. Uh, Stock market boomed. Gary Cohn from Goldman Sachs became like the guy on the economy jobs, everything was good. And I had like completely written this off as a possibility as of like three weeks ago. Right. Like, you know, three weeks ago, there was a story that John Kelly was going to get pushed out and replaced by Gary Cohn. Like, it really seemed like the Goldmanites had won. Right. It just seemed like Trump was really into the stock market doing well. Uh, The stock market, I think, has always clearly not wanted Trump to initiate a series of trade wars. And yet, offhand, Trump said the other day that we're going to have 25 percent tariffs on steel and 10 percent tariffs on aluminum. And while the paperwork is not 100 percent done on that yet, and some elements on the right keep really holding on to that, trying to really really suggest that it won't happen. (laughs) And he's actually getting like meaningful pushback from Republicans on Capitol Hill. Uh, it sort of looks like this is going to happen. And and it should be said, this is also the kind of thing that we sort of once thought might happen, where lots of Republicans on Capitol Hill are seriously complaining about this. Uh, the stock market doesn't like it, but many Democrats are praising this move. That right. This is this is like Trump the disruptor. This is this is Trump the populist, like for better or worse, in a way that we have truly not seen or or we've seen the occasional we were talking about before like weirdo meeting where it seemed like Trump was going to go rogue but this was not a weirdo meeting right this did not happen because Donald Trump just happened to have had a sit down with Sherrod Brown like there were big ongoing fights for weeks inside the West Wing about this. Most of Trump's advisors said you should not impose steel and aluminum tariffs. A couple of them said he should and like he he seems to, for now, have made up his mind that that he wants to do it. So look forward to more expensive cans. Right. I want to kind of underline just how much this is something that not only Republicans on the Hill, but Trump's own advisors have been vocally fighting him on. Like there have been policy fights in the White House in the past where like each faction has felt it a good idea to leak to the press that there are ongoing policy fights about something and that each side is trying to win the president's ear. This is different. This is something where people who oppose tariffs have made it known that the president wants to pass tariffs and people are trying to persuade him that it's a bad idea. And so leading up to this announcement Thursday, it became known in the press on Wednesday night that 
Trump was planning these steel and aluminum tariffs. The White House sent out a daily schedule for the next day that had an event with, you know, industry representatives. And then on Thursday morning, White House advisors said, no, 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 this is just a listening session. There won't be any policy announcement. And then Trump made the policy announcement anyway. And I was talking earlier about not wanting to pay any attention to kind of televised meetings. There weren't any executive policy announcements being made at the you know, BS televised meetings. This is something where the president says something actually does kind of compel people to start moving on it. And he said the thing. So there are kind of two dynamics here. One is that he was saying something that people in his White House had been putting out for weeks he wanted to do and they wanted to fight him on. And he's now kind of forcing them to go along with it or at least to, you know, slow him down, which is a dynamic that he's sensed is happening in the past and has gotten really upset about. Like, you know, last year when he tried to fire Jeff Sessions and Prince Priebus kind of slow walked in and he got mad at him about that. So this is a Trump versus his advisors phenomenon that we haven't really seen before. Right. And this is it's still a little early to see how it's going to play out, because obviously Donald Trump is not going to sit down and write a tariff regulation. Um, but it's a little bit dangerous in term. And there there are lots of White House intrigue stories this week about how people in the White House are concerned that Trump is not listening to anyone in a way he hasn't done before. And like there definitely are things where that's going to be a big problem. Well, I think let's try to explain the the actual policy here because Please there's, do. There's, what there's, is some, the tariff? there's some there's some important nuances to this. So yeah, for one thing, I mean I even just uh, uh heard some people that this morning at the gym were like didn't know what the word tariff meant. So a tariff is a tax. Um a tax on foreign things that are imported to the United States. Something you will hear in the coverage is that a number of previous presidents have imposed tariffs on steel, uh, including George W. Bush, uh, Barack Obama, sort of. But there's a critical difference here. It is critical in two ways, both because it means the policy is different and also, really importantly, it means the process is different uh, because process matters a lot in the Trump administration because it's a it's a constant shit show. And what we saw under the previous couple administrations was the the use of what's called anti-dumping tariffs, right? So in that case, you say, okay, some foreign country or other is illegitimately subsidizing its exports into the United States to try to kill off American domestic industry. So we're going to levy anti-dumping tariffs against them. That's allowed by WTO, World Trade Organization, rules. When you do it, then the country who's been targeted typically complains, says, no, 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 we aren't dumping. We're allowed to do these countervailing tariffs. And then there's like a bureaucratic process through which it's all hashed out. Nothing much has ever sort of come of this, I I would say. Um, Neither George W. Bush nor Barack Obama succeeded in reviving the American steel industry based on this kind of ticky-tack bureaucratic wrangling. So what Trump is doing at Wilbur Ross's suggestion is something else. It's, It's Section 232 tariff, which invokes national security. And so the idea of this is that America wants to be a mighty military power. And we cannot rely exclusively on imported metal uh, because it would be dangerous in wartime. And and there's a definite logic to that, right? Like if all of America's steel came from China, then we would not be in a credible military situation vis-a-vis China, right? So that's what this says, that for national security reasons, we need to put these high protective tariffs on steel and aluminum. That is not 
WTO process. It's just like a, a declaration of war on the global trading system, which is why there's more of a freak out sort of atmosphere about it among trade economists. It's not that it's not that the steel tariff is such a big deal compared to previous ones, but there's a big difference between saying I'm going to file a complaint with the international legal authority and saying no, I'm going to invoke this decades old statute that makes no reference to any kind of international law. A second thing that's important is that the Defense Department says this is bullshit, right? It's not just that like advisors said it was a bad idea, but you have the Commerce Department saying national security requires steel tariffs, and you have the Defense Department quite publicly on the record saying that that is not true. They have sort of offered two reasons to think that it's not true, right? One is that the American military does not actually use that much steel and aluminum in the grand scheme of things, uh, and so a modest size American metallurgy industry can adequately supply them. The other thing is that the biggest source of imported steel for the United States is not China, but Canada, right? And then the other big ones are Europe, Brazil, and Japan are all ahead of China. So it would be compelling, I guess, if we were prepping for war with Canada to say that we have excessive dependence on Canadian metal, but we're not. And so that's why the State Department has also weighed in against this. If you took it literally, right, this would be a huge disruption to the American alliance system, right? This is one thing in which we benefited from the fact that everyone accepts that Trump doesn't know what he's talking about. If foreign countries sincerely thought that Donald Trump sincerely thought that Canadian control of natural resources was a national security threat to the United States because we had some, like— short-term plan to fight a war with them, it w that would be a really big deal, like a bigger deal than this is. I think we all sort of get that this is just kind of nonsense. Um, but that's what makes it so striking, is that you have the president invoking a legal authority that he really has, but with a clearly false factual basis, and that lies totally outside the international legal framework for it. And then this is where the economic team gets concerned, which is that because Trump is breaking all the World Trade Organization rules, that now means it's like no holds barred for retaliation against the United States, right? Basically anything any country wants to do now will pass WTO muster. We haven't seen it yet. Nobody has like rolled out the countervailing measures. We don't really know what they will do, but it's at least possible that things will get like really extreme once you go – outside the framework that corporate America and the business world has for decades now gotten, gotten used to. So that's what's going on here. And the critical thing is you would think that the Treasury Department, the National Economic Council, the Defense Department, and the State Department's unanimous verdict would carry weight on a question of whether a trade policy measure is vital for national security. But the legal authority is vested with the Commerce Department. And Wilbur Ross, the Commerce Secretary, is on board for this policy. So the sort of hope that I've seen a lot of people put out is that this will be like the uh, ban on transgender soldiers, which Trump announced but does not appear to have actually happened um, because the generals just haven't done it. 
and Trump, I don't want to say Trump can't make them, but he doesn't seem to know how to make them. But in this case, the like filling out of the paperwork would be done at the Commerce Department. And the Commerce Secretary probably could indefinitely slow walk this if he wanted to, but he gives every indication of wanting to do it. And because it's the Trump administration and everything is corrupt, part of Wilbur Ross's background in American business is just in owning American metal producing companies who will be big winners from this. So I have questions about the kind of Republican Hill response to this, because it's, you know, not only have they been, as we've said, extremely vocal in saying this would be terrible, please, let's not do this. But some of them have decided that instead of attacking Trump directly, they want to attack Wilbur Ross. They want to say it's a terrible decision from Trump's commerce secretary. Ahem, ahem. But I want to ask you, Jane, because this is something that I can't really get my head around. In a lot of other regards, Republicans on the Hill who have expressed relatively orthodox Republican positions in the past have been a lot more open to populism in the Trump era because they've thought that Trump's victory and his popularity among you know a large swath of the Republican base means that their party should be going in a more populist direction. And that doesn't appear to have blown over here. There, there don't appear to be any Republicans going, well, this is what our base really wants. But like obviously, Trump is speaking here from the perspective of there are steel workers in Pennsylvania who voted for me, who really like me, and we should do something for them. And that's a logic that Republicans have been pretty responsive to under Trump, but this is where they appear to draw the line. Well, I would push back and say, I don't think they really bought any of that, really. I think they thought that like populism could be like, yeah, we're going to like be meaner on the campaign trail or talk about America first or, you know, make people stand up during the national anthem. But I think that when Trump is claiming that trade wars are easy to win and basically kind of trying to bring us back to the Smoot-Hawley tariff act, I don't think that this is the kind of populism they had in mind. I think that for a lot of conservatives, they thought that Okay, so we've you know we've got Trump in the White House, but we've all we've also got Mitch McConnell, Paul Ryan, kind of standard Republicans in Congress, and they're still there. They're not populists. You know, when someone tried to challenge Paul Ryan in his own district, he beat them by like some absurd number of points, and then he became a giant racist. But that's not the point. I think that there were very much was a sense that like this was a controlled populism. This was a populism in name only, not a populism in economic policy. But I think that. On that measure, you know, I mentioned again that this and guns are two issues on which Trump's perspectives have not really changed. You know, someone brought up uh, Trump did a Playboy interview in 1990, and he spends half of it going on about how Japan has literally out-egoized this country because they rule the greatest money machine ever assembled. They have so much subsidy that their products are better, and we're getting laughed at around the world for losing $150 billion year after year because we don't have these tariffs. And that's 1990. So this is something that Trump has long believed is that these other countries, be it China, Japan, Canada, somewhere else, is just like outworking us or outthinking us. And we have to fight back and we're not fighting enough. And I think that that is something that the Republican Party did not adequately control for. Like, I think they thought that they're just basically going to slow walk him, you know, away from this idea. And now they can't. And here we are now. I mean, it's worth underscoring 
how little Republican support there is for this, right? So, you know, steel protectionism is something that a lot of American politicians have looked at primarily as a way to win votes, specifically in the states of Pennsylvania and Ohio, where they manufacture a lot of steel. Uh, but Senator Pat Toomey, Republican from Pennsylvania, he said that he favored steel and aluminum tariffs, but he wanted them to be traditional anti-dumping tariffs targeting China, and that what Trump had just done was overreach, the attempts retaliation. And it's like, this is so in the weeds, but it's like, there's a mind-blowing level of like craziness to this policy such that the intended beneficiaries of it are not jumping for joy exactly. Now, what's interesting is that a number of Democrats who have always been on the more um, populist protectionist side of trade are cheering Trump on. So Sherrod Brown from Ohio is all for this. Uh, and so you might think that's just like goes to show like how into steel protectionism Sherrod Brown is. But I suspect some of this is like Democrats playing weird mind games here. So like Gary Peters from Michigan, who's like a big trade skeptic, you expect, you know, Michigan, domestic manufacturing, blah, blah, blah. So he put out a statement uh, applauding Trump on, on some of this stuff. But if you think about it, cars are made of steel and aluminum. Right. This is really bad for American automakers. And Michigan is closer to Canada than it is to some of the places producing steel right. in the U.S. And so the car makers' stocks all tanked at this announcement. It's really bad for them. It's doubly bad, actually, for U.S. car manufacturers because cars are made of steel and aluminum. And importing the steel and aluminum has now gotten more expensive, but importing cars has not gotten more expensive, right? So Toyota makes most of the cars Toyota sells in the United States are made in the United States, but some of them are made in Japan and put on boats. And so now it's more expensive for Toyota to make a car in the United States than it is to make it in Japan and ship it over here. So it's like it's really bad for U.S. domestic auto manufacturing. I don't know exactly. I mean, Democrats sort of had this idea that never got off the ground, that they could just like ensnare Trump in a lot of fighting with congressional Republicans, and that something good for Democrats is likely to sort of jar loose if Trump gets into some kind of crazy feud with them. Uh, so I, I almost feel like some of the Democrats from the Midwest are like trying to tempt Trump like further off the cliff than anybody really wants him to go. Um, the other thing to be said about this is that you know, the way this is supposed to work, or if, if you want to make a case where you say, look, these are good, like, steel-making jobs, so we have the tariff, then people will make more American steel, and we'll have the jobs. But in the short term, we have had this happen enough that we know that what really happens is that if you're a steel company executive, like, making more steel is hard. You know, you'd have to hire people. Like, it's a big pain in the butt. What's really easy is to just raise your prices because with the new 25% tax on imports, imported steel gets 25% more expensive. So you just sell the exact same amount of steel as you were selling before, but you jack prices up 20 to 25%. What's true is that that will make the companies more profitable. So over a period of years, they should start expanding production because they're more profitable. But you would really need to keep it stuck for a long time in order to have that like job-creating, production-expanding impact. 
We have not seen a president sort of have the guts to like white knuckle it through that period, right? Bush did this in, in a version of this in 2002. Steel prices went up. Steel using industries complained a lot. There were retaliatory tariffs. And about a year later, he was like, no, this is this is bad. I'm abandoning this policy. It's totally conceivable that if he had actually like gutted it out through like five, six, seven, eight years of making steel more expensive, that the U.S. steel industry would have not just uh, reaped windfall profits, but like actually grown. But it's tough to stick it out like that. And I don't know that Donald Trump is like the guy who's going to do that, who's going to like ride out currents of political opposition no. or, or, or financial distress. On the other hand, like he seems to have very strong feelings about trade. So here's my other question for you, though, because we've kind of mentioned the stock market at a couple of points here. And one of the weird dynamics of the Trump era has been that stocks so far have been really great under Trump. They were, I mean, obviously particularly great in expectation of and then kind of response to tax reform passing. But like for the most part, the people doing the kind of stock market moving and shaking never appeared to take the more destructive economic policies that Trump espoused terribly seriously. And then all of a sudden yesterday with the announcement, the Dow went down 400 points, you know, all of that stuff. There have been some moments where there have been stock market shocks about, say, you know, war with North Korea or other things where something that would be very bad for the U.S. looks a little more likely. But this has been the first time that it looks like the stock market has taken the prospect that Trump would actually do the things that they don't want him to do seriously. And so I'm wondering if you, Matt, think that this is a turning point, that this is something where this is going to get priced into trading in the future, or whether it was just kind of a momentary blip and they're going to kind of continue to hold very tight to the fact that the paperwork hasn't been signed yet and generally kind of assume that the adults will come back into the room. I mean, I I don't want to make big stock market predictions. I think that if this truly does go through next week, right, that if, if Trump rides out two days of a down market, a weekend of Wall Street Journal editorials telling him not to do this, a certain number of people popping up on Fox News to slam it. And then, of course, he'll also be defended, right? I mean, we know Trump is big into watching the media coverage. And if Trump spends the weekend's worth of executive time digesting how this is being received and he thinks he likes it, and then sometime Monday or Tuesday, like Wilbur Ross really puts out the memo, I think that there will be a big effect, not not because steel imports are so important to the American economy exactly, but because that would fundamentally alter our understanding of how policymaking is working in Trump land, right? I mean, we had settled into an equilibrium in which, for better or worse, the DACA flip-flop was like what everyone had come to expect from Trump. And the business community, although probably not on the specifics of the DACA issue, in general was like very happy with the idea of Trump as a pure captive of the hard right. Trump, as sometimes a populist, but more fundamentally just erratic, like somebody who will actually do the things that he tweets— as opposed to somebody who will tweet things but then govern more or less how Paul Ryan would govern. Right, so less even erratic, which I think is something that people had come to count on, than, uh, you know, isolated and unaccountable. Right. Right. 
which, you know, the personnel moves in the White House this week have yeah. kind of underlined that, that there no longer is anyone who can get to Trump and talk him down off the ledge. Right. Yeah, right. I mean, there's the ledge. I mean, there's also just the fact that there's something very paradoxical about looking to John Kelly as the rock of stability, simply in that, I mean— from a standpoint of what if we tweet our way into a nuclear war, a guy with a career military background, you know, does feel reassuring on that regard. But like nobody knows what John Kelly thinks about anything or if he thinks at all about tariffs or God knows what. Right. right. It's like it's not it's not the same as if your strong chief of staff was like. A former governor no. or, or something where you'd be like, OK, it's just like he's president right? Like because the, like the John one, Kelly wouldn't be president. The one point of information we have on John Kelly and trade is that John Kelly trusted a great deal and was hoping to increase the, the policy portfolio of the person who had been kind of one of the go-betweens for Trump on trade, who was Rob Porter. Right. And that doesn't necessarily say anything about John Kelly's policy beliefs, but it's kind of another way in which the policy direction of this White House is being determined more than anything by these non-policy scandals and shakeups that, uh, you know, have totally consumed the White House. Yeah, yeah. It's it's not very comforting that all this rested on a two-time domestic abuser. Great. Right. Fantastic. And so uh, so this is the story, to, to put our cards on the table. So, so Rob Porter it was drummed out yeah. eventually over, over these domestic abuse charges. He had been, like, running the paper flow. Right. And apparently his job had been to, like, keep Peter keep, Navarro out of the Oval Office. And keep Peter Navarro out, keep InfoWars out, keep Breitbart out. Right. And basically John Kelly, which that has been one thing I, I like – picturing is that apparently part of John Kelly Rob Porter's job is to keep people like Dana Rohrabacher and just keep all these people like, no, you're not allowed in. No, no, you're not allowed to like have you and Chuck Johnson and Julian Assange all have these great conversations with the White House. You're not allowed to do that. And Hope Hicks leaving is relevant to this because she, at least from what one is told, did not have a super strong agenda to push, but was someone who Trump knew a long time, who'd been with him before the campaign. And he finds people like that reassuring, people who he knows well. So Peter Navarro is also somebody who has been with Trump for a while and who he knows and who was into him. I mean, I think reasonably, if you are the unexpected underdog winner, you have a special affection for people who backed you when everyone thought you were going to lose over people like Gary Cohn who are like, hey, Mr. President, why don't you let me run the economy, right? And so Navarro can fill some of that like Hope Hicks void of like the longtime loyalist, but He's a guy with like a really strong opinion about public policy and an axe to grind. Right. He is the Stephen Miller in this situation, somebody who supported Trump from way back, but did so for policy reasons and therefore is less likely to get subsumed by this, you know, non-policy stuff. Like you could expect under normal circumstances that Jared Kushner would be kind of a strong voice against this because he, you know, traditional business interests, yada, yada, yada. But Trump is upset with Jared Kushner over whatever Kushner did to have his security clearance downgraded to secret, which, you know, I saw somebody say anybody without a criminal record gets that on their first day in the White House. It's not a big deal. And Trump is reportedly very frustrated with Kushner over this. So it's the kind of people who are left standing are the 
the Stevens Miller and Peters Navarro of the world, who, because their agenda is to achieve the policy outcomes they want to, keep a kind of head down and stay in their lane when it comes to all this other Michigas. You've used Michigas and you've pluralized Stevens Miller. I really just I just want to applaud that. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that there's definitely a sense that at this point Trump is isolated and that means that he has more opportunity to do all the things that conservatives thought he wouldn't actually do, which if you're a conservative would be very worrying. And with that, I think we'll uh, bring this Michigas to an end. Thanks to everybody out there for listening. Thank you, Jane, for uh, joining us. Thanks to our producer, Bridget Armstrong, and our engineer, Griffin Tan. And the weeds will be back next week. Mm-hmm.